It's time for the 7th Avenue Project, radio for the helplessly inquisitive. Hello and welcome to the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. And in this edition of the show, why language ain't what it used to be. Human language is a living, ever-evolving thing, changing as we speak and because we speak. And today the linguist Guy Deutscher will be speaking to us about how and why our languages refuse to stand still. Guy Deutscher is an honorary research fellow at the School of Languages, Linguistics, and Culture at the University of Manchester in England, and he's the author of The Unfolding of Language, an evolutionary tour of mankind's greatest invention. We're going to be throwing a lot of language questions at him today, including, can languages change for the worse if they're misused? Does language get more complicated or more simple over time? And what's the effect of writing on the spoken tongue? How about the impact of texting and other new forms of electronic communication? And how much of language is coded in the brain, and how much grew out of actual use, the give and take of everyday communication? Those are some of the queries we'll be posing today. I invite you to stick around for the answers. Guy, thank you for participating in this interview. Oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, You know, I think it's been a common refrain throughout our times, and uh, I guess going back many years, that uh, those people who who see themselves as guardians of the language think it is going to hell in a handbasket. Yes, uh, it's a very common view, I think, both in America and um, over here in, in England, actually, in practically all countries I know, certainly in, in um, Germany and uh, in France, in Italy and uh, in Israel, where I come from originally. And uh, what I try to show in, in um, the unfolding of language was not only this is a, a universal sentiment today, but it uh, goes back a very long time and uh, <clears throat> complains about the fact that language is really going down the drain, that if um, things go on um, this way, it, it's just going to collapse within the next few years, I have been made for hundreds and actually thousands of years. And even Cicero um, wasn't happy with the Latin of his own day and said that, uh, you know, just a few generations before everyone was speaking correctly, but now things are, you know, have gone down the drain. This seems to be a concern mostly of educated people, that Bulgarians are destroying the mother tongue. Well, there, there's certainly an element of that um, uh, in all this. And, and again, it's always been like that. Um, it's always the sentiment of those um, on high towards the new innovations that, that usually come from down below. But I, I, I don't think those guardians uh, realize that that's part of what they're doing. They, they, their concerns are, are really I mean, genuine. They just look at the language they grew up with and they see that, you know, the, the language that the younger generation today is speaking is very different. And um, they think this is a sort of terrible, terrible state of affairs. Well, they often um, say that the basis of their concern is is that the logic of the language is being um, fractured by people who aren't using it sensibly or rationally. Um is there any basis to that idea that, that, first of all, that there is an iron logic to traditional speech and that uh, innovations corrupt that logic? Uh, no, I think there's no basis for that whatsoever. Language is one of the least logical systems that um, you know, mankind has ever invented. And we are not aware of the illogicalities in the system that we've grown up with because you know, they've been there from the beginning for us. So we either ignore them or even if we um, are aware of them, we just take them as something respectable. But any anything new that seems not to make sense, we pounce on because um, that hasn't been there before. But uh, really, language is the wrong place to look for logic. Which I guess is why um, artificial languages invented for purposes of, of really rigorous logic don't look anything like natural languages. That's right. Y- you know, in fact... Um, when I consider some of the things that people think of as uh, barbarisms or language mistakes that are bemoaned by the defenders of language, actually, they're often um, an attempt to add some logic 
to the language, you know, by taking, say, an irregular verb and making it regular. Uh, when a child, for instance, um, oh, is learning language and they say things like, I gived it to her, what that child's doing is, is simply, you know, making uh, give into a regular verb by adding ed instead of saying gave. And that's actually that's, adding logic. That's absolutely right. It's, it's exactly right. I mean, why would anyone... Um, introduce any new form if they weren't trying to make it more logical, to make it simpler. In the book, I try to divide the um, types of innovations that um, people make or the motives behind these innovations into three main types, really. And one of these three was exactly trying to make language more logical. Of course, when people make an innovation, it's not that they sort of sit and think about the global system of language and try to see, okay, well, there's sort of illogicalities there, let's let's try to correct them. They're, they're simply doing things by simple analogy. And the example you mentioned is, is uh, as good as it gets in, in, in terms of showing that you always do something because there's a, another form that's similar and you're trying to take a, an irregular form or, or something that looks a bit odd and adapt it to a or the more general rule. But actually, even the other way around, um, when uh, I think especially in America, when people say, uh, I dove instead of dived, do they do that? Yes. Yes. Um, in fact, we do it so much that um, I think a lot of people hearing this will, will say, what do you mean? Isn't that the, the proper... Uh... Well, you see, in England, it's definitely still not considered correct. Uh, the correct past form is dived. Um, <laughs> but even there, uh, this is not just coming out of the blue. It's, it's a simple analogy when people hear, well, I drive, I drove, so I dive, I dove. Exactly. And, and you know, another one that I'm hearing these days um, sometimes... I have heard people, when they want to say the past tense of drag, say drug. And I'm pretty, mm -hmm. sure, I'm pretty sure they're simply uh, following the form of dig and dug. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and there's uh, another one with sneak. What's your past tense of sneak? <laughs> well, you'll definitely hear people say snuck, for sure. Yes, yes. <laughs> and again, I think it's just entering the language over here, but it's definitely substandard here. Um, but again, no one introduces any innovation unless there's some logic to it. Uh, those that are based on some type of analogy are, are almost by definition have some inherent logic. Otherwise, no one would have made them in the first place. Mm -hmm. So is the resistance to change, is the fear of language decay, is that, is that really just coming from a, a general discomfort with anything new and anything uh, foreign, or is there some mechanism at play uh, in which people want to preserve whatever customs are attached to language simply because that's what we've gotten used to, and therefore any change is going to make communication a little more difficult? Well, ultimately, it's, it's, a, it's a cultural question. Language is one of the most important elements of our cultural identity, and uh, it's, it's no wonder that people are worried by the fact that it's changing. Um, from a linguistic point of view, this makes no sense whatsoever, because we know that the types of changes that are taking place now have been taking place in exactly the same way for many thousands of years, and nothing has happened. People haven't stopped understanding one another um, because of the changes. Again, I, I spend quite a lot of time explaining how it is that language can uh, change so quickly, and yet uh, the communication uh, is not hampered. But uh, this is from a, you know, a, a purely scientific perspective. That doesn't help those people who um, are just very concerned that their language as their form of, of cultural identity is, is changing. If you explain to them that the new form is just as comprehensible as the old one, that it, it doesn't make it sound any better for them or <laughs> I'd say any more respectable. It's, it's, I suppose, ultimately a question of respectability. All the illogicalities of the past are fine just because they are those of the past. They're, they're what we've sort of grown up with. And I guess some people would cling to them because in learning that rather arbitrary and difficult system of customs, they distinguish themselves socially, you know, as a person uh, of a certain background and to give up those things and to see those signs of accomplishment, uh, you know, fall by the wayside um, is kind of emotionally difficult, maybe? That, that, that's, again, absolutely right. And, and this is also why I don't think 
I mean, we, we cannot say that it doesn't matter how you speak uh, exactly because there is all this sort of the, the social cultural values attached to it. And I think that there are some linguists who've, who've gone that, down that way, um, trying to say that, you know, you shouldn't uh, teach standard norms in school because all languages from the point or all varieties from the point of view of, of strict logic are, are just as you know, just as logical and just as good. But while this is true, it doesn't address the question or it doesn't address the, the, the situation that we do generally judge people by the way they speak. And uh, adhering to certain norms allows you to gain uh, admittance to a certain club. Now, while, while um, saying in this conversation that there's no reason to be afraid that the uh, the great edifice of, say, uh, modern English is going to collapse under assault from teenagers using the word like too often. Um, are there cases of languages collapsing due to social forces beyond the obvious of, of, of an entire people disappearing or being swallowed up by another culture? Are there cases of languages falling apart? No, I don't think there's ever been a case um, that we know of, of a language simply falling apart because people couldn't communicate anymore because they've dropped too many consonants or because um, they started using words like like too often. Um, there are, sadly, in, um, many hundreds um, uh, of cases of languages indeed collapsing or just disappearing because people have stopped speaking them. But this has nothing to do with, um, again, with any linguistic um Reasons. This this is just uh, purely to do with with um, socio-political reasons. All these languages of of small um, societies, and and uh, you know, in America, you've you've um, uh, got hundreds of, of of examples of these of of the I mean, original native languages of the of the continent. Uh, very few are still spoken, and even those um, are generally in a, you know in in a state that, that we call um, endangerment. Right. Um, let's talk in more detail about some of the forces at work in, in changing language, since that's really the subject of your book, The Unfolding of Language, how language changes over the, the decades and the uh, millennia. Um, you have three forces, basically, that you invoke. And one is the force of economy. Um, that is people, I guess, seeking a more efficient way to say something. Yes, that that's right. But I, I maybe wouldn't phrase it quite as in the, in these words because this the way you you just said it implies that they are sort of sitting at a desk <laughs> and thinking, well, how can we make language more efficient? And uh, that's of course not what what happens. No one really uh, thinks about the um, these changes. These are things that just happen because we are essentially naturally very lazy and uh, we try. I think uh, not just in language, but uh, language is a good example to get by with it, it, the least effort we can. And so when we pronounce words, especially in fast speech, we put just as much effort into pronouncing things clearly uh, so that people can understand us and not a tiny bit more. We make very many shortcuts in pronunciation when the effects of these shortcuts accumulate, they can then lead to real changes in pronunciation. Uh, so the verb make in English today has a irregular past tense, made, but the original form was maked, but um, the middle bit essentially dropped out, and so maked just became made. We we still see that uh, articulated ed in, in old poetry, but we don't say it that way anymore. We don't say we talked. We just say we talked. Just to to cut corners. That's what we humans are always doing. It's uh, exactly yes, cutting corners. And actually, this dropping of the ed in the end um, that was something that in the 18th century, um, Jonathan Swift was uh, <laughs> absolutely livid about. <laughs> It still hangs on in a couple of uh, special words. I think people might still use the word beloved, you know, for someone that they love, but it's a pretty rare thing in, in modern to English. Today, that's right, yeah. yes. Well, uh, you make the point in your book that um, this process of erosion, which is like a geological process, uh, you know, structures wearing down over years of um, corner cutting by, by speakers, 
dropping parts of words, dropping whole cases or, or conjugation forms, things like that, just simplifying the language, which again must horrify the the standard bearers uh, of the language, but uh, nonetheless happens. But that's not all that happens. There are other forces at work as well. That's right. If things went just in one direction in this way, then we, we probably really would have um, ended up in speaking all in, in, in grunts and groans. You described this, this second creative force um, that, uh, in a sense, is opposed to the, the force of erosion or economy as coming from a desire for expressiveness. Uh, sometimes, just to be blunt and forceful, we shorten a word. Maybe an older English form of, of a negation like no, was, was it not? Was it something longer than that? Um, what's now this sort of... Uh one miserable syllable, um, which which isn't even. I mean, if you say um, isn't, it's not even. Uh, it doesn't even have its own vowel. Started out um, as a form neahuicht, um, which means um, not ever thing. I mean, nothing whatsoever. Oh. And when they used that more and more, it it lost both. It started losing both its, you know, emphatic force and uh, also was reduced phonetically and and sort of became shorter and shorter until it ended up as as a you know the mere not or even nt. <laughs> or or no as we say today and yet if we really want to emphasize it we we start adding words we say no way no freaking way um not on your life in in, in a lot of other ways uh so this again i think this illustrates um again these two uh counterpoised forces that you describe in your book, at one to, to shorten and economize and the other to lengthen and, uh, and expand. That's right. And, and this, this sort of creates these eternal cycles where you expand, put lots of words that sound quite forceful and grand together. Um, and then because, of, because you start overusing them, there's this sort of inherent inflation because the, the more you use them, the less impressive they become and <laughs> and so you start you need to use more and more i mean stronger and stronger terms or longer and longer words uh and and you know and, and then these get used more often and their value is is depreciated and and so on so it's it's a, a it's a cycle that goes on all the time and and again has been for forever i think so if we were to look back in the history of languages um we wouldn't see one inexorable process of simplification uh, starting with very complex languages, getting simpler and simpler, or the reverse? Well, because of these um, processes that we've just been talking about, there's no reason why language should become either more complex or simpler, because older words get shorter and simpler, fine, on the one hand, and on the other hand, new words come in through a uh, merger and a uh, fusion of, of words, and so I mean, longer words can be created. And, and so on the whole, there, there can be an equilibrium uh, in, in the complexity, certainly, of the, of the structure of words. Now, when we uh, look in practice over the history, certainly, of the Indo-European languages, of, of the languages of the major languages of Europe over the last few millennia, then we see that the, the process hasn't been at a perfect equilibrium. And in fact, on the whole, there has been a tendency towards simplification in the last few thousand years. It seems that there have been more more simplification than new fusions of, of words. But of course, the, the, the difficult question is why. Um, I believe, although it's, it, this is definitely quite controversial and it's not uh, it's far from consensus I would say that this has something to do with as societies grow larger and more complex there's there's actually stronger uh, pressure for simplification of words uh, I was going to get to that because it, it is something um, that you take up with in your latest book yes through the language glass and you say that it's been kind of a um, unexamined uh, axiom in linguistics for quite a while that all languages are equally complex, but the evidence doesn't always bear that out. And when I say complexity, I mean grammatical structure. I don't mean vocabulary, uh, which is another issue altogether. Um, but um, one of the, the things you point out that is interesting is that contrary to what some people might immediately assume, that uh, the technological societies have the more complex grammatical structures, because advanced societies are more complicated than so-called primitive ones. It's, it's actually the reverse in many cases. 
Yes, sadly, if we look at the structure of words, um, not so much the structure of sentences, uh-huh. but the, the internal structure of words, there seems to be quite a strong statistical correlation. Smaller and simpler societies tend to have much more complex words, much longer words, um, words that, that quite often uh, encapsulate uh, uh, much more information in, in one word than we are used to in, in, in English or in other standard European languages. Uh, whereas languages of larger, more complex societies tend, again, statistically to have simpler word structure. Now, now why would uh, that be? I know you have some ideas on that. Yes, I mean, that, that I mean, may look counterintuitive, but probably one of the main factor is that in larger societies, there's probably a much stronger pressure towards simplification. And this is because in larger societies, we are exposed to a, a much wider variety of different types or, or different varieties of the language, different di- different regional dialects, different social dialects, uh, different accents or foreign accents and so on. Um, and this is because we are exposed to the speech of an enormous amount of strangers. Mm-hmm. And if you compare that to the way people communicate in very simple, small societies where you know everyone you speak to extremely well, the better we know someone, the more um, we are able to um, use very concise ways of of um, of speech. Uh, quite often, just point in with our words to you know places and people, and not have to spell them out in the same way that we need to do with strangers. And that is one factor that uh, ends up actually making it more likely that there will be new fusions um, of, of words and words, get, words getting more complex in simple societies. Um, and then on the other hand, we know that exposure to different varieties of the language is, is usually force that um, uh, favors simplicity because even relatively minor differences in um, the structure of words can lead to um, problems in, in understanding. And whenever there's intense contact between speakers of different varieties of the same language or even two languages, the structure of words is sort of the first thing to suffer and and, and get simplified. Um, So uh, the reason why English, for example, has such a simple word structure is found to a large extent in what happened after the Norman conquest in 1066 with the intense contact between um, uh, English and French speakers, because until then, English actually had a very complex word structure, much more similar to that of modern German. So you're saying that uh, in these cosmopolitan societies, you're likely to see simpler word structures, and in fact, you do in many cases. But uh, why wouldn't that same process also simplify sentence structure uh, and other elements of grammar? Um because we know that uh, for uh, adult speakers, the, the structure or, or complex words are the most difficult thing to learn in a new language. Um, the reason for that is that the way you put uh, sentences together is generally much more logical because you have uh, independent units that each one has a, a certain meaning. And when you want to put them together, you, you put one and then the other. You don't have to... Uh, remember uh, a large amount of of largely arbitrary forms. But if you think about uh, languages like Spanish or French, um, where you have all these uh, dozens of different verb forms, um, depending on, um, you know, the tense, the person, the aspect, and so on. So what in English you you do by putting together independent words like I go, but I would have gone, I should have gone, I had gone, I will be going, and um, and so on. In a language like Spanish, you do all that by different forms of, of, the, of the verb, by different endings, essentially. And you have to memorize, in order to speak Spanish correctly, you have to memorize a, a really frightening array of, uh, of different forms. And, and that is far more difficult. So... When you have the, the, the situation where 
have to learn a, a, a new language or even a new variety of the same language because of contact um, in their adult years. Uh, word structure is the one that sort of suffers most. As anyone who has struggled with Latin can surely tell you. And we'll return to today's interview with the linguist Guy Deutscher in just a moment. This is the 7th Avenue Project. I'm your host, Robert Polly. Conjugate the verb to go. Uh, here, right. Uh, Aeon, it, 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 it,
I, I, I didn't want to meet Tarzan to be taken too literally, of course. That yeah. was, was tongue-in-cheek. Yeah. But um, the, the uh, idea behind it, I, I certainly think that was the case, that we did start with uh, a very simple language. I don't go back beyond the, the stage that you've just described um, to the grunts and groans, because I think that's the stage that I start with is really the, uh, the, the outer border of what we can reach in terms of certainly with with the tools that language itself uh, gives us um but i think at that point if we start there we can actually show how language acquired all these uh, sophisticated mechanisms that uh, we we associate with with modern language using exactly those um forces that we've been talking about and the types of changes that are, are, are happening even now. You don't have to evoke anything mysterious or anything incomprehensible or anything that uh, only was only valid in those prehistoric days. And I think it's very plausible that language started with essentially nouns and verbs, uh, words for simple objects, essentially, and a bunch of words for simple actions like you know, run or kick or eat or kill and so on. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's fairly obvious that uh, language didn't start with um, would-haves and possiblies. <laughs> well, uh, let, me, let me just challenge that just a tiny bit with a little bit of amateur reasoning here. The complexity of a language doesn't subsist entirely in the signals, the words themselves, but it also relies on context. And context can supply a lot of meaning, such that, you know, for instance, when I'm with my dog, uh, actually my dog died about a year ago, but when I spent time with my dog and watched the various ways we communicated, I realized that a tail wag is a very simple signifier. But on the other hand, it can mean a, a lot of different things and some very complicated things depending on context. So it struck me that the language we had going between us, despite her limited vocabulary, was a fairly sophisticated language. Um, is that possible that that even in the the primitive world that we're imagining um, in this conversation that the language could have included possibilities and things like that that they were in a way built into the context of the communication? Oh, I mean, uh, I, I, yes, I, I entirely agree. Um, um, to start with, you know, you read the, this um, my putative story just a, a few seconds ago, and you, you can see that it's all completely stripped down. Um, that there's nothing of the possibilities and. And um, would have um, actually, when you hear it, you understand perfectly well what it's all about. And um, definitely, when when um, people would have communicated, uh, I don't know when it was exactly, hundred thousand years ago, or even two or three um, gestures, facial facial gest gestures, um, and so on, would have uh, communicated enormous amount of. Uh, nuances and uh, feelings, emotions, and so on. Um, I, I, I wasn't um, by any means trying to trying to um, deny that, but the story of language in, in, in some sense is how language came to develop the means to express such subtle emotions explicitly. Uh, not that uh, um, uh, not that these emotions were not there or couldn't be, in any way communicated before, but um, making them explicit um, rather than part of the context is, 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 I suppose, the main the main difference. I see. So the context, the situation could include a, a rich array of meaning, but but the language might have started out simple and gradually acquired the ability to to convey that meaning itself without so much context. So that now I can read your book and. And understand its meaning with essentially no gestures, no no situational setting whatsoever. You know exactly, and and you don't need to go to a um, uh, hundred thousand years ago. You can look at uh, what we call pidgin languages today. So when uh, populations of people have to communicate uh, without any common language, essentially, um, uh, and they they essentially strip down their language to the absolute minimum and this language that they use it doesn't look so different from the sort of starting stage that, that I um, postulated there it, this is not because the people don't 
can't express any subtle emotions or, or whatever. They, they, they can do it perfectly well in their own mother tongue. But when they need to communicate using this sort of stripped down language, they, they do so. Um, all, the, all the subtleties are, you know, necessarily left to the context, but they're, but they're there. You know, the, um, so the merit of, of um, modern sophisticated language is exactly that. I can convey to you an almost infinitely rich array of, of, of subtle feelings and nuances without ever having seen you or even speak to you by, by writing. Um, and that obviously wouldn't have been possible then. Well, how much um, influence do you think writing has exercised on the development of language. I know these arguments go on all the time, that speech is primary, speech is the real driving engine of change. And in fact, the examples that you and I have been talking about are mostly examples of speech, the economizing of speech. But does does written language, when it becomes really prominent in a society, does it tend to stabilize language? Does it tend to make language richer and more sophisticated? Um, does it add innovations um, or, or fight against them? I think on the whole, written language, or at least mass literacy, the fact that reading and writing is widespread in the population has um, significant effect on the on the development of language. But that effect, I think, is mostly one of uh, retarding changes or slowing down changes uh, rather than introducing a different type of innovation or, or definitely not one of um, speeding up changes. And uh, the reason for that is not terribly mysterious. And, and that is that written language by its nature tends to be much more conservative, um, much more of the guardians of um, norms of um, past generations. And um, the exposure that we have to the speech norms of past generations through the written language, which is something that obviously does not exist in um, illiterate societies, is is definitely a factor that um, makes us more aware of past norms and, and uh, quite often want to imitate them. And uh, so it, it, it sort of puts a break on changes quite often. And obviously it can't stop them altogether. But it seems, again, I mean, that that um, the rate of change of generally language and uh, certainly of, of some areas are, are probably much slower in um, the last couple of centuries than they were in uh, in the past where literacy wasn't such a force in, in, in society. So, so the conventions of written language, proper written language, tend to enshrine certain yes. certain practices in such a way that they, they stick, whereas in the ebb and flow of everyday speech, they might have uh, changed much more quickly. Exactly. I mean, we talked um, about the fusions of words together um, um, before, and um, that's a, a prime example, because in spoken uh, language, uh, there are no spaces between words, and... Um, if you never see anything written down, the the chances of two words that appear together being uh, conceived as just one word and so ending up as, as as one longer words are much, much higher. But when you're exposed all the time to uh, um, the written norm where there are spaces between words and, and uh, each one gets its... Um, is conceived as a separate entity that, um, again, it can't completely stop the, um, the the process of words melting, but but it can it definitely slows it down. Now, in the the distant past, writing um, and publishing, especially, or 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 imprinting in one form or another, whether it was engraving on a stone or or writing on a papyrus or um, you know some early printing press was was an, an elite and very, very special practice, and it tended to be reserved for really important documents, you know, first and foremost, sacred documents. And, of course, they had their own normative power, uh, you know, enforcing something as, as, as decreed by God and, and, and not subject to change by human beings. And um, to some extent, I think, you know, that kind of normative power of of written language was preserved even into the 20th century. But now we have a new form, and I'm not sure whether you would put it in the category of writing or speech or somewhere in between. And I, I mean texting and email and uh, and other electronic forms of communication that are so informal 
that they don't seem to have any rules whatsoever, uh, and they seem to have every bit as much fluidity as, as speech. Yes. Um, um, people have often asked me whether texting and so on is uh, uh, will have a major effect on the development of language. Um, I think we have to separate this question into two. Um, one is whether the texting revolution will have a major effect on the development of spoken language and the other is whether it will have a major effect on, on the development of written language. I think the first question, I, I, I don't see why or how the particular mode of writing will have a major effect on the development of, of spoken language. Not that spoken language isn't changing. Of course, it's changing, and um, but, but it always has been changing. And uh, I don't see why the, the texting revolution will take it in a, a radically different direction. But if we're talking about the, the conventions of written language, which are in some sense much more artificial um, in the first place, then it is quite likely that, um, you know, a, a whole new type of uh, convention will will arise and that uh, something like texting or um, will become a, a written genre with its own norms, which will, who knows, possibly eventually take over um, as, as the major means of at least informal written communication. Um, mm. But that is, I think, to be strictly separated from the influence on just the normal developments of spoken language. You know, I was, I was just imagining that if we propose, as I think we did, that the invention of writing and the, the ascent of the written word actually then had some effect on, on how people spoke by rigidifying certain conventions and by maybe causing people to to examine their speech and, and speak more along the lines of the written word formal yes. and more formal ways if that if that happened at some point in history then maybe now when we're seeing uh the the sacred place the hallowed place of writing um i think um chipped away at uh in a kind of post literate society but also to some extent formal written english uh being displaced by more informal uh, forms like text ease and, and email ease. <laughs> so I thought maybe maybe we'll see a consequent uh, uh, yes. change in the effect of writing on speech. Well, it's not it's not that it's post um, literate, but it it uh, I mean what uh, changes is the level of formality, not the you know the lesser reliance on written communication mm -hmm. in fact it's probably other uh, the other way around mm -hmm. so uh, i i would expect that people well i know certainly that um i communicate more in writing than um i would have done without email because uh, the the um alternative to that you know the email is often an alternative to the phone so so it, it's not that people write less um um but the level of formality has changed, mm -hmm. um, and and that may well have an effect uh, on the lines lines that you've just described. Um, the subtitle of the book we've been discussing is uh, "The Unfolding of Language: An Evolutionary Tour of Mankind's Greatest Invention." I want you to justify the use of that word "invention." Is it really an invention? Did we invent it? Uh, well, I, I start the book actually by saying that language is mankind's greatest invention, except, of course, that it was never invented. In some sense, this is what the whole book revolves around. Um, and this is a question that I had from childhood, really. Um, and that was the, the question which made me want to study linguistics. And, and uh, then uh, spent whatever, 10 years trying to answer is we, we know that it's not an invention. No one sat there and said, okay, well, we need a sophisticated language. How should we do it? Um, uh, it would be nice to have verbs and adjectives and adverbs and so on. And let's, um, oh, well, no, actually, it might be better to do it this way and so on. Um, it developed. It wasn't consciously invented. And yet, when you actually look at some of the sophisticated structures in language, it, it almost... Uh, defies belief that this could have arisen in any other way except uh, as, as a 
conscious invention of, of an ingenious architect. Um, and it's exactly this contradiction that I think is uh, at the heart of this fascination that quite a lot of us have with language. An ingenious architect, but, but eccentric, to say the least. Oh, yes. Um, wherever <laughs> you look in, in the language system, um, on the one hand, you find the most magnificent architectures. And yet in not a single language, uh, perhaps except Esperanto, um, which is not absolutely full of um, irregularities and uh, um, illogicalities and so on. And this is such a, seems such a strong contradiction uh, at first sight. Why, why is it that, you know, on the one hand, we've managed to create such, uh, you know, sophisticated uh, systems and why, um, on the other hand, we can't sort of get rid of all these <laughs> annoying irregularities that, that, that are there as, as part of the picture. But uh, um, if you do understand how this magnificent edifice uh, evolved, it is exactly because it didn't arise by the conscious uh, um, sort of plan of anyone, but because it arose from uh, the accumulation of you know, generations upon generations of, of, of little steps, little analogies, little sort of corrections. Um, and each one of these corrections uh, and innovations usually makes something slightly more uh, logical. But I mean, even if you make something more logical in, in your local area, in, in, you actually end up messing something else um, in uh, in another part of language. Mm. Um, you know, you, you gracefully sidestep in your book um, the discussion of how much of language is absolutely innate, hardwired in the brain, versus how much is, in fact, the outgrowth of experience and social processes. Uh, I don't want to put you in an uncomfortable position, but, but what do you think? I mean, in the, in the story that you tell, it's possible to imagine language springing up and accruing over time, relying on a smart brain, indeed, a smart brain, but not necessarily uh, any kind of built-in grammar that applies to all languages and, and that is um, hardwired in the brain. By the way, this is the argument, of course, that is associated with Noam Chomsky. Yes. And many people outside of linguistics think that case was pretty much decided uh, 50 years ago when Chomsky mm. won the battle. <laughs> no, I don't. I mean, uh, that, that case has been, I mean, that has been one of the most controversial and, and bitterly disputed questions uh, in, in linguistics for, for the last 50 years, certainly. And it, it, it certainly hasn't been um, decided one way or the other. Um, in fact, Chomsky himself, uh, in recent years, uh, uh, has changed his opinion quite considerably. But in, in the unfolding of language, I, I didn't want to make the book in any way a polemical um, one, or uh, uh, mainly because the, the, this discussion has been so bitter and, and, and in many senses um, counterproductive. But certainly my basic... Um, or, or something that comes out of, of it, is that we simply do not need to assume that so much of the uh, detailed structure of, the, um, of language is innate, because we can explain it uh, more simply by, by alternative means, by, by the sort of natural development of, of language that we can see in, 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 uh, at work even today. And so I think certainly the, the implication of what comes out for, uh, of, the, of the end of my book, where I, where I sort of start with this very simple form of language, the, the so-called Mitazen stage, and, and develop it step by step, is, is to say that we, we certainly don't need anything more detailed or sophisticated than this Mitazen thing. Uh, to be innately specified, because all the rest we can explain uh, by other means. Uh, so possibly we need the, the uh, ability to um, distinguish nouns and verbs, or, or more accurately, perhaps objects and actions, um, as an innate part of our perception. But um, by a sort of Occam's razor argument, um, if if we don't need the DNA to include 
detailed, sophisticated grammatical structures, then it's more plausible to um, assume that they're not there. We, we would definitely need advanced intellectual faculties to wrestle with the complexity of the language that did evolve and to acquire it rather quickly as, as kids. But you're saying we might not need something that some people have referred to as a universal grammar, a sort of mother of all grammars that some have said is uh, built into the brain uh, and gives rise to all the uh, different manifestations we see in, in different languages. Yes, yes. I mean, um, there's no question that the uh, ability to acquire language is innate. Um, the, the intellectual capacity is, is there, um, and that's almost a tautology because... <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, you know, chimpanzees just don't learn human language. But uh, the controversial question is how much of the detailed grammatical structure is innate? Mm -hmm. How much of the, of the, the actual um, grammatical rules are really pre-wired? And there I think that um, much less needs to be pre-wired than what was claimed in, in the past by Chomsky and what many people still believe. Um, Chomsky himself, uh, as I said, in, in, uh, seems to have made quite radical changes in, in, in his view recently. But definitely as far as, as detailed grammatical structures, there's no pressing need to assume that they are pre-wired pre and that they are sort of somehow coded in the DNA. Well, well Guy, it, uh, it's been fascinating, and I, I look forward to talking to you again sometime. Uh, thanks very much. Entirely my pleasure. Guy Deutscher is a distinguished researcher at the School of Languages, Linguistics, and Culture at the University of Manchester, and he's the author of The Unfolding of Language, an Evolutionary Tour Through Mankind's Greatest Invention. He's also written a more recent book, Through the Language Glass, which has been getting a lot of attention lately. It's about the popular idea that our different languages lead to differences in the way we see and experience the world. Deutscher says that despite being widely oversold in the past, that notion may have some truth to it after all, at least in limited circumstances. We're hoping to get him back to talk about that on a future show. I'm Robert Polly. This has been the 7th Avenue Project on the web at 7thAvenueProject.com.